Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. Greetings from Seoul, the capital of South Korea. I'm in town for a few days, mainly to have a look at the ADEX Defense Exhibition, and the reasons for that are kind of self-evident, that in Australia, we're starting to become more familiar with some South Korean defense equipment. This is through Hanwha. We've ordered the Redback Infantry Fighting Vehicle and the Huntsman Self-Propelled Howitzer. Uh, there are other things that, that Hanwha have developed that could be of interest. Some satellite technology, some autonomous systems. I keep on banging on about Chunmu, the multiple launch rocket system that I think has some technical advantage over HIMARS and a lot more to offer in terms of technology transfer. I'll continue to beat on that drum for a while, even though Australia seems so utterly obsessed, or Army, I should say, seems so utterly obsessed with HIMARS that they're just not interested in looking at anything else. There's CHI, Korea Aerospace Industries, who are a contender uh, for Air 6002, the Hawk Leiden Fighter Replacement Project, only if that actually goes ahead. And I would say that there are some doubts about that because of funding pressures, general funding pressures on the budget. And once you add in AUKUS and the distorting effect that that has on the budget potentially for, for a couple of decades, a lot of projects, are, I think, uh, face doubtful futures. Uh, what else? Well, swinging back to Hanwha Ocean, that's the company that used to be DSME, Daewoo Shipbuilding and Marine Engineering from memory, uh, one of South Korea's two major shipbuilding companies, and Hanwha Ocean, again, have stated their interest in an interim conventional diesel-electric submarine with a very capable air-independent propulsion system, should Australia take an interest in it. By the way, I think clearly we should, because the basic point is this. We might get second-hand Virginia-class submarines in the 2030s, but equally we might not. Now, for me, proper planning involves some sort of hedging strategy. Just having a think about what happens if your preferred methodology falls over. Please, we should not be doing exactly what happened with the attack class. And there was no plan B for the attack class. The only alternate plan was to make plan A better. And that turned out to be a total failure. Now, just a, a very quick word to point out that South Korea, in the same time that Australia has built and operated six Collins-class submarines, the Republic of Korea has built and currently operate 22 submarines of increasing complexity. There are another three on the way. As well as that, the country has exported three submarines to Indonesia. And I can assure you that Canada is looking at them very seriously for what could be a very large order, well, by Australian standards, of between eight and 12 conventional submarines with a decision to be made in about three years' time from the way that I'm reading the tea leaves. Now, 
I'm not going to turn this into a sustained commercial for the Korean design. I've touched on it before, but I'll mention it again. It is, it is a submarine that is physically larger than the Collins class. It's a long-range ocean-going submarine. In terms of innovative technology, it has a fuel cell air-independent propulsion system, which gives underwater endurance of more than 20 days. I'll just repeat that, 20 days without the need to come to the surface. It has a vertical launch missile system that currently is designed to take Korean weapons, but could be modified to take anything else in pretty much the same class. So at the moment, again, because of just this obsession with AUKUS and a refusal to even start considering what alternatives to AUKUS might look like, the Koreans really would be well advised not advised not to waste a huge amount of time and money on this exercise, but just keeping an eye on the space is probably a sensible thing to do. Now, just a final quick comment about AUKUS. I noticed that there was some media reporting a few days ago about a $15 million annual airfare bill for AUKUS-related travel. Now, that doesn't include accommodation, it doesn't include allowances, and it doesn't factor in wasted time sitting on flights or going through airport security. Now, having said that, I'm not anti-travel. On the contrary, I accept that it's a necessary part of work and it needs to be spoken of, debated about in a mature and sensible way. So that amount of money in the context of the overall defence budget doesn't particularly bother me, except if it has eaten up so much of the department's travel budget that they can't do things like come to this ADEX show. And uh, on day one, I saw uniforms from many, many different countries because Korea has become a place of great interest because of the capacity here that I'll talk about in a moment. I haven't yet seen an Australian uniform. That doesn't mean that there aren't people here. I hope they are. If it turns out that no one could be bothered making the effort, I will be very disappointed and would argue that that is a mistake and that if AUKUS is taking up the entire travel budget, that's a distortion that needs to be addressed. Now, okay, a little bit about the Korean economic miracle and how we got here and how it is that Korean defence technology companies have come out of pretty much nowhere in the last 10 years to now be world competitive and a major suppliers to Poland, for example, as well as the Middle East, other European countries, including many NATO nations. Now, Korea was completely devastated by the civil war from 1950 to 1953. The, the, the country was ruined afterwards. The North actually started to make a quicker recovery from the South because the North, even though it had been like carpet bombed ceaselessly, had the backing of the Soviet Union and to a lesser extent China. China was recovering from their terrible civil war, but nevertheless, uh, the North had quite a lot of um, outside help. What the South got was way less than that. 
some from the United States, but uh, really not enough to be doing anything more than kind of palliative measures to alleviate the worst of the suffering. And American policy at the time didn't really seem to encourage much economic growth in South Korea. Their model was that Japan, which was recovering from the Second World War at amazing speed, the theory was that uh, the Japan would be able to, to supply Korea with manufactured goods and consumer goods and all of that sort of stuff. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, the Koreans took something of a different view. And without going through the entire post-Second World War history, in the early 60s, there was a military coup and President Park took over. And his vision was to dramatically increase South Korea's industrial capacity with a view towards self-reliance. And it was a, a, a series of five-year plans really designed to boost the economy. And generally speaking, they were very successful. President Park lasted until 1979, until he was assassinated in slightly controversial, or I should say slightly mysterious circumstances. The, the country remained under military rule for a bit longer than that. The military hardline dictators had a model of doing business that was actually quite consultative with academia, you know, research tanks, and especially with Korean industry. And even trade unions were sort of included in this collective effort to, to a greater or lesser extent, to lift the entire national economy, to transform the national economy. And the way that this was done was through the creation of family-owned companies called chaibols. They're the equivalent, the, the Korean equivalent of Japanese zaibatsu. And examples in this country include Samsung, Hyundai, Hanwha, there are about a dozen of them. Now, the the model that President Park adopted was basically to say to each of these companies, at the time they were all quite small, but they were led by people who were judged to be quite you know dynamic and entrepreneurial, and they were given a, a sector of the economy and basically said, okay, the government will back you the government will give you soft loans. In some circumstances, the government will fund the development of infrastructure. You will get tax breaks and you will be operating largely in a protected, non-competitive environment and you go for it. And go for it, they did. It only took about 20 years before the results to start to become apparent in the early 80s and then it has continued to surge. And yes, there have, been a, there have been temporary setbacks, Asian economic crisis of 1997, though that acted as, uh, in fact, an opportunity for further restructuring, further streamlining of the economy, because the government of that day was a democratic government by then, used uh, the excuse of an IMF bailout to institute a whole lot of other reforms uh, social security, safety net, uh, more regulations here or there. Anyway, you, you put all of that together. 
this, you know, the South Korean economic miracle has been studied at length by economists in this sort of five-minute summary. Obviously, can't really do it justice, but I hope I'm giving you a flavour of how it all works out. And for people who might make the mistake of believing that uh, I think that everything about South Korea is perfect, uh, no, it isn't. I'm, uh, I'm an enormous fan of the achievements that have been made here, particularly economically, but, you know, socially, culturally, all the rest. But there are some downsides and there are some features of the South Korean economic model that couldn't certainly couldn't be applied to Australia and might not work in other parts of the world as well. And these chaiboles, one of the consequences of having these enormously powerful families is that the first generation people seem to be, you know, all right in terms of, uh, of, uh, of their ethical behaviour. But the second generation, my goodness, it's almost a, a comedy of errors with people being jailed for bribery and embezzlement and the just the behaviour of some of these kids. Well, they're now, you know, themselves mature adults punching people in restaurants because they've had an argument, being up on bribery charges and attempting to get out of that by bribing people to drop the bribery charges. They have enormous wealth and yet people are periodically busted for fiddling uh, on their taxes itself, by the way, an enormously difficult task to prove because another feature of these companies, apart from family ownerships, is that they set up a myriad of uh, subsidiaries with cross-shareholdings and just the most complex arrangements possible. So you would need almost a literal army of accountants and tax lawyers to be able to get to the bottom of exactly what they've been up to with these huge sums. And to, to lighten the, the mood a little, uh, one of the most famous incidents of bad behaviour was the so-called 2014 Korean Air Nut Rage incident, where an aircraft was on the ground in the United States awaiting takeoff, and the daughter of the owner, obviously some spoiled brat along with the, the rest of them, objected to... She was in first class, of course. She objected to her macadamia nuts. I'm, I'm giggling at the recollection of the details. She objected to her macadamia nuts being given to her in the original packet rather than being put in a bowl and handed over. And she had such a temper tantrum, uh, being the daughter of the owner, she had you know huge authority... She had such a temper tantrum that she refused to let the airline take off until the staff involved groveled and scraped and apologised in front of her. But this, you know, this got out. Her behaviour had been witnessed by, well, quite a few people on the flight, more than just the one crew member who was on the, the receiving end of, like, you know, terrible verbal abuse over the macadamia nuts. That yeah, it caught up with her. I, th I think she might have actually done a short stint in jail, but was certainly hauled through the courts and ultimately had to go back and meet with all of the airline staff and in turn bow in front of them and beg for her forgiveness and apologise and, and, and all the rest, which is, must have been very gratifying to all of those involved. <clears throat> anyway, so yes, there are some downsides to, to corporate life in Korea. 
there are a number of other troubling aspects. People, put very simply, many of them work too hard that there is or a fairly unforgiving culture has developed in terms of the hours that people work, uh, the lack of holidays or the, the unwillingness of people to go on holidays. They have a problem of a declining birth rate that's shared by a number of countries, Japan, Singapore, well, Russia, but Russia for different reasons. I think Russia is because all of the men are either being killed in Ukraine or are drinking themselves to death. Here, the reasons are a bit more complex societal. It would seem that just young people are very stressed economically and are sort of more preoccupied with having a good job and savings than they are with children. So again, that's something that that, um, that the government has been actively thinking out uh, about for several years, but hasn't yet come up with a formula for fixing it. It might include uh, increasing the immigration program. I uh, just this afternoon, a, a very distinguished and knowledgeable Korean said to me that Korea is interested in Australia's dismantling of the white Australia policy in the late 60s and early 70s and how Australia transformed itself from kind of an Anglo-Celtic monoculture along with our Indigenous Australians, how Australia transformed itself into an open multicultural society and uh, whether there's something that Korea can adopt from that, which I found to be a very interesting perspective on things. Anyway, uh, the end result of the economic growth is an enormously progressive manufacturing and technology sector. And that's across the board, by the way, not just for military equipment. It's motor vehicles, it's, it's computers, it's consumer goods, it's a whole lot of stuff. The military equipment, as I said, Australia is discovering what's on offer. Poland is well ahead of us. Poland last year signed a huge umbrella contract with Korea for the supply of uh, main battle tanks, self-propelled howitzers, multiple launch rocket systems, and training and light attack aircraft. And apart from being able to manufacture at scale, the other very important thing that distinguishes Korean companies and the Korean government from the US, supposedly, you know, our best friend and, and ally, the Koreans are very happy to transfer technology and intellectual property. And with the US, that is always, always a very big problem. Anyway, um, but while we're talking ADEX and a defense show, let's have a very quick look at the forthcoming Indo-Pacific conference in Sydney, a Naval Forces Conference that just about all listeners will be familiar with, and how that's shaping up. Now, there are rumours, and I do emphasise rumours, and I hope that they are wrong, that Defence is instructing their people, if they attend the show, not to have briefings in private rooms, that everything must be held in public. Now, I'm very reluctant to, to be too rude, but I mean, how stupid is, is this? I really hope that this one is wrong. If it's correct, it would suggest to me that there are senior people in defence who, what, imagine that people in private 
conference rooms that they're going to take off their uniforms and, and have an orgy. I mean, what could possibly be behind an instruction that is just so absurd? You go into a conference room so that you're sitting at a desk and so you can take notes and so you can watch some sort of audio-visual presentation. If you're compelled to stand outside in amongst all of the, you know, the models and you've got hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people streaming by, the noise level goes way up. You can't focus on what you're doing. Your level of comprehension is way less than if you're sitting in a small room, yeah, maybe with a complimentary cup of coffee. But if this is true, it will be one of the most petty, ridiculous, anti-industry, anti-cooperation moves that I've ever heard of in my entire life. And that's really saying something. And I'll just say the two uh, relevant ministers, I believe that uh, Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy will not attend. He has obligations with a South Pacific uh, Leaders Forum. And uh, as of now, the presence of Defence Minister Richard Miles hasn't been confirmed. He presumably has a busy golf schedule, so we will have to wait and see whether he is able to attend Indo-Defence. And presumably he too will uh, only meet with people in public rather than in a room, you know, in case something un untoward happens. How ridiculous. Okay, uh, that's it for today. Uh, greetings or goodbye, I should say, from Korea. There will be one week pause in these podcasts because I'm taking a week of leave and I'm going to travel around Korea, including to hopefully find what remains, which is quite a lot of it, of the world's first printing press that I've mentioned in an earlier podcast. 200 years before Johannes Gutenberg and uh, the printing of the Bible in Germany. If I've got time and if people are interested in future, I'll be happy to give a rundown on that. Thank you for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.